Um, so we're coming to the, well, we're continuing on really uh, with our series of growing in love. And uh, we're going to be looking at Galatians 5 in a bit. Um, so we'll be turning there in a bit. But before we get there, um, I just want to ask you all a question this morning. Um, and the question I want to ask you is, how would you know that the Holy Spirit was moving powerfully in this church? How, how would you know that that was the case? Well, um, I guess you would come up, people would come up with a lot of different um, answers to that question. So some people might come up um, with uh, things like tongues and prophecy, for example. And they would say, well, there's a great move of the Spirit in that place um, because there are lots of manifestations, visible manifestations of the Spirit. Um, in fact, if we look at the Bible, I don't think you would be a million miles off the truth if you thought that. Because oftentimes, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit was moving, uh, frequently, it was very frequently accompanied by tongues or prophecy. Um, and in fact, that occurred on three different occasions in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. Um, in Acts 10, and in, in Acts 19. So there was, there was something visible that happened. I don't know whether you remember the story of Simon the sorcerer. Do you remember him? And he was... Um, he was someone that um, he wanted to buy the power to give people the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it said that um, people, he wanted to buy this gift. He was motivated to buy this gift because it said that when he laid his hands, they saw that the Spirit was given. So something visible appears to have occurred at that time. And many people think that it makes sense, along with the other accounts in Acts, that, that was probably, there was a, probably a manifestation um, like tongues or prophecy, something visible that was happening. So I don't think people are completely off-beam when they say, you know, that we may expect some gifts of the Spirit to, to manifest. But the other question I want to ask is, because you've got tongues and prophecy, does that always mean that the Spirit is manifesting? Well, the answer to that is no. And the reason I say that is because we know for a fact that speaking in tongues, or glossolalia, is associated with non-Christian religions. So it occurs in the voodoo religion of Haiti, and it occurs among Hindu gurus. And I've heard several accounts through people in my family who were formerly involved in spiritualism, and they said that during uh, trances, mediums would frequently speak in tongues. So what am I saying by this strange introduction? <laughs> what I'm really saying is that I'm definitely not saying speaking in tongues is bad. It's very scriptural, I believe. But what I'm trying to say is that going back to my question at the beginning, that these things don't always give us cast-iron proof of the presence of the Spirit among us. They don't always. They may be due to the Holy Spirit, but they can also be due to other things. So, for example, they can be counterfeited by the enemy. In some cases, they can be produced by psychological means. 
And in some cases, you can get tricksters and charlatans who are producing these things. So we don't always know with those things. We can expect that they may often happen, but we don't know for certain when they do happen that it's the Holy Spirit. So if it's not the gifts of the Spirit, if it's not tongues and prophecy, they're not absolute certainty, maybe signs and wonders. And they frequently occur in the Bible with the preaching of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 or 4 it talks about God confirming his word with signs and wonders. Uh, it says various uh, signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So signs and wonders, they often can confirm the word of God. They accompany the preaching of the word of God. But here's the thing. We know that when the Antichrist comes, we heard of the Antichrist who's going to come at the end of time, we know that he is able... To, we know that Satan is able to mimic signs and wonders. And we know that the Antichrist is ultimately going to use this fact to establish his credibility. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So this leaves us in a bit of a quandary. It leaves us in a difficult situation. All these things are happening, and we're thinking, how do I know that the Spirit is working? How do I know that the Holy Spirit is manifesting? Is there anything that would give us undeniable evidence of his working? Is there anything? Well, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 22. And Galatians 5:22 says... The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So in just the same way, I've got an apple tree in my garden. It is actually dying, I think. Um, but uh, I've got an apple tree in my garden, and my apple tree always produces apples. It doesn't produce oranges or pears. It always produces apples. And uh, my sister grows quite a few tomatoes, and her tomato plants always produce tomatoes. So when the Spirit is present, the Holy Spirit always produces love. And do you know what? Love is the one thing that Satan cannot counterfeit. He cannot counterfeit. Do you know the Bible says that Satan is a murderer? He was a murderer from the beginning. So he doesn't know what true love is. He, can't, he, cannot, um, he, cannot, counter, he cannot counterfeit that. He cannot mimic it. Um, he is incapable of producing that Calvary love, the love of Jesus. So what I want to do just very briefly uh, this morning um, is just to have a, a quick look at um, Galatians 5. We're going to read through the chapter and then we're just going to bring out some points really about how we can grow in love by the power of the Spirit and the things that need to be in place to do that. So um, let's just look at Galatians chapter 5. So if you want to follow with me, it's Galatians chapter 5 verses 1 to 26. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. 
For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offence of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfil the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. It's a great passage, isn't it? Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot there. You remember that Paul wrote this book of Galatians um, in about AD 48. And basically he was writing it because the churches in Galatia were becoming increasingly infiltrated by a group of teachers called the Judaizers. And they were saying that faith in Jesus is not enough um, to be right with God. Faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to be circumcised as well. They particularly emphasise circumcision. And the main reason of this letter um, of, of the Apostle Paul was to tell, try and tell the Galatians how they couldn't be ensnared again by these heavy chains of legalism, how they could get out of legalism. That's what Paul was, that's the basic point of what Paul was trying to do. And that really brings us on to our first point this morning. The first point about how can we grow in love by the power of the Spirit. And it's this, growing in love by the power of the Spirit is only possible as we relate to God by grace. It's only possible. We cannot grow in love um, without that foundation. If we relate to God in any other way, it strangles all of the love outside, out of our lives. I don't know whether you've ever met a legalistic Christian. I think I've probably gone through phases in my life when I've been a bit legalistic, actually. Um, but legalistic Christians, they're often very dour, they're often very joyless, and they're marked by a lack of love. 
They have a deep hardness in them towards God and other people. Now, there's a few reasons for that. Verse 1 talks about that they've been entangled again by a yoke of bondage. But do you remember Jesus said, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But these guys in Galatia, they'd become, it says in verse 4, they'd become debtors to keep the whole law. They're trying to keep the whole law and they realized they couldn't do it. And what that does is it basically causes several responses in us when we relate to God by legalism. So basically, these people, their entire focus becomes trying to get brownie points with God. And they then become hardened towards God and towards other people. And this is manifested in a few different ways. The first way it can be manifested is that they become almost like, you would say, religious fanatics. They basically don't have any time in their lives left to love other people. They're so involved in doing things to fulfill their religious duties that actually they don't have any time in their lives left to spend quality time with people. Do you remember the, good, do you remember the Samaritan man? Do you remember um, he was left in the dust, wasn't he, to die? And he was left by some very religious people. And they didn't want to help him, or they couldn't help him, because they were far too busy trying to get to church. The key thing in their life had become performing religious duties. Their heart wasn't really soft towards other people. They weren't really interested in other people's pain. They were more interested in trying to rank up points with God. So that's the first thing that can happen. We can become sort of obsessively trying to, to, to fulfill lots of religious duties. So we're, we're, we're winning brownie points with God. But the second thing is interesting, and some of us are like this. I can be like this at times. They become, what I would say, the second group of people, is they become bitter older brothers. So they're a bit like the older brother in the parable of the lost son. The one, after a while, after years and years of this grating, joyless religious existence, eventually they become exhausted. And what happens is they start to resent other people that they don't think are doing everything they should, who haven't quite reached the mark. So they become very bitter older brothers. And they become, like the older brother, they become calloused and judgmental towards people that they don't think have quite reached the mark. And the third thing that can happen to these people that squashes out love in their lives is they can become jealous rivals. So they start to see life as being like a righteousness competition. You know, oh, I can be more externally righteous than you. And, um, and they start to do, it basically starts to become an ego war. It starts to become an ego war. And sometimes legalistic people can fall into that. Paul says in verse 15, and that this leads them to bite and devour and ultimately consume one another. That's the snare of legalism. That's the snare of bondage. And Paul doesn't mince his words about these people. He says, he says about them in verse 4, he says that they've become estranged from Christ. They've become cut off from the abundant life which Jesus offers. They've become estranged from Christ. They've fallen from grace. Normally, we think if someone falls from grace, it's like they go into, you know, drugs and rock and roll and, you know, something obvious like that. Um, 
But actually, uh, well, <laughs> maybe not rock, rock and roll, actually. There's nothing, wrong, there's nothing wrong with rock and roll, by the way. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not commenting on any style of music this morning. Um, uh, but, you know, we, we tend to think of it as being like someone becomes a gang member or something. Who's previously been a Christian, they become a gang member or something like that. But actually, fallen from grace really means that they've stopped trusting in Jesus alone. They've stopped resting on what he's done. So they've fallen from that position of grace and they've started to relate by legalism. Um, So that's really what happens. But if we look at verse 5, you know, in some ways the legalist's desire is right. We should have a desire to see practical righteousness manifested in our lives. Um, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 5 and verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, um, for they shall be filled. So in some ways, it's a good thing to want to have righteousness manifested in your life. But the thing is, man, the thing is righteousness cannot be um, obtained by striving and straining for it. If we look at verse uh, 5, and it says three things really about how we receive righteousness in our lives. How do we receive righteousness in our lives? Well, the first one is it's through the Spirit. It's produced in us as we submit to what the Holy Spirit is doing. The second, the second point is we eagerly wait for this righteousness. We actively depend on the Spirit to bring this righteousness um, forward. And thirdly, this righteousness is received by faith. And I find that interesting because we often think of our justification being received by faith. But in many ways, we also receive our sanctification by faith. We also receive that practical righteousness in our lives by faith. What did Paul say in Galatians 2 verse 20? He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm I'm not trying to strive to manifest this righteousness, I'm receiving it by faith. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're going to move on swiftly to the next point. Um, Growing in love by the power of the Spirit means that recognizing that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, the Judaizers here, they remind you a lot of the Pharisees um, the Pharisees couldn't see the wood for the trees. They, they kind of prided themselves on how well they were keeping up to all of the laws. Um, but Jesus says to them, doesn't he? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faith. So they concentrated on a lot of peripheral issues Um, but they had overlooked what the heart of the law is, and that can be summed up in one word, really, love. In verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So verse 14 actually spells that out for us. Verse 14 says clearly to us, The law is fulfilled in one word, even as this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's really the command which is at the heart of Christianity, of being a practical Christian. That, is that one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's really important that we actually just spend a couple of minutes thinking about what that means. 
You know, the Bible says, contrary to what some people would say, the Bible teaches that in some ways we already come into this world and we already love ourselves. Um, it says in Ephesians 5 and verse 29, it says that no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Not only does the Bible teach that that's the case, but if you look around at life, you can see that generally people are committed to their own well-being. Everyone has quite a, a passionate co commitment to that. You know, and even at times when people say things like, I hate myself, um, as people do when they're very distressed, they often don't mean that. They often mean, um, I just don't like the way that my life is turning out. It's not working the way that I want it. Normally speaking, the love that we have for ourselves, it has three features to it, three special features, I would say. First of all, it's preferential. We have a preferential love for ourselves. So we normally have a greater interest in ourselves than we do of other people. Simple test. You're tagged in a Facebook photo, okay? Whose picture do you look at first? Whose picture do you normally look at first? Normally, you're most interested in what you're doing and what your picture is. Um, that's just life, isn't it? The second thing about the preferential love we have for ourselves, the, the love we have for ourselves, the second thing is it's unconditional. We're always committed to our own good at all times in our lives, come what may. And the third thing about the love that we have naturally towards ourselves is that we tend to be, it tends to be a forgiving, look, a forgiving love. So we tend to overlook things in ourselves and be very soft in ourselves and overlook things in ourselves which we can't stand in other people. You know, if other people manifested those things, we couldn't stand it even for a second, we'd probably tell them. But we overlook those things in ourselves. So naturally speaking, we have a love which is preferential, it's unconditional, and it's forgiving. And that's the love we have for ourselves. We're born with that. And, uh, you know, obviously that has something that has become twisted, really, by the fall, that we have this intense self-focus. But Jesus is commanding something extremely radical. It's very radical. The Christian faith is very, very radical. He's saying, yes, I know you're committed to yourself in this way, in all those characteristics, and you always will be, in a way, as long as you live. But what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to transfer that love you have for yourself and to place it onto someone else. And that's basically what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did on the cross, and that is what Jesus um, calls us to do. He calls us, and that's difficult. Actually, it's not just difficult, it's impossible. He calls us to die to the demands of self so that we're then freed to enable others in that way. So that really is the heart of the law. That's, that's the heart of the law. That's, that is that love, which is the fulfillment of the law, basically. So the legalists tried to reach this standard. They tried hard to reach this standard. Perhaps they knew that. They knew that that's what they should be shooting for. But they also realized that they couldn't you know, work it up by their own efforts. And so what happened? What was the result? They ended up burdened. They ended up bitter and they ended up burnt out. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We realize what we should be doing, and we, we end up in the same way. So that brings us on quickly to our next point. Growing in love by the power of the Spirit, it means submitting to the Holy Spirit rather than striving to perform. As we realize what Jesus is calling us to, we realize the heights of, his, of what he's calling us to, we could be tempted just to kind of throw it all in, give up the towel, it's all, it's all too difficult, um, 
but actually, um, we have received the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, that's why I think, that's why I say love is, is more of a miracle. It's much more of a miracle to change my heart than to raise someone from the dead. It's much more of a miracle to change our natural warped natures. That's much more of a miracle than to have the most dramatic miracle. Because it's impossible for us. We're not like that naturally. But it's through the Spirit. It's not through our own efforts. And you know what? As Christians, you know, it says here in verse 16, it says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that mean? The power of sin has been broken over us. So we don't need to live as slaves anymore of our sinful natures. Although our flesh remains in us until we die, the power of the Spirit surpasses that of the flesh and we are able to live a liberated life free of those lusts and desires. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that, you know, sometimes we can think, oh, I'm struggling with my flesh, I'm struggling with my flesh. But the Bible clearly says that the Holy Spirit is stronger than our flesh. And I think sometimes we kind of say, yes, we'll always struggle with sin. Yes, we won't be sinlessly perfect. But the reality is that the spirit or the power within us is able to counteract and overcome that sinful nature. What does walking in the Spirit mean practically? And how is that different from just trying to do the right thing? Well, I think that some things in, Christi- some things in the Christian life are kind of a bit more, you know, they're not all just in a book, are they, and you can just read about them, but they're kind of a bit more subjective almost. So I think that the Spirit works by nudging us in different ways. So if you come into church and you see someone sitting on their own, you think, you know, I really should talk to that person. They look a bit lonely. Maybe I should make them feel welcome. Well, that's what I would call the nudge of the Spirit in your life. Um, When you sense that someone's a bit down or distracted and they don't look very happy and something in you says, just give that person a text, just give them a ring, just see how they're doing. That's the nudge of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you have in your life a lack of ease about going somewhere, you think this is going to lead me to sin, that's the nudge of the Spirit in your life. So the the Spirit nudges us. I know it's a bit of a funny word, but I think the Spirit kind of nudges us, really. And what the Spirit nudges us to do is he nudges us to demonstrate that kind of unconditional, preferential, and forgiving love towards others. And we can ignore the voice of the Spirit, can't we? And if we ignore the voice of the Spirit, it becomes fainter and fainter into a tiny whisper. We can't really hear God anymore. But if we submit to the Spirit, um, then um, then we, we become more and more sensitive to what he's saying. I wonder if you've sensed the nudge of the Spirit recently. I wonder if God has been calling you to something. I wonder if he's been drawing you to love in some way or another. And I wonder how you've responded to that. I wonder how I've responded to it. Probably not very well. But I wonder, I wonder how, you've, how you've responded to that. I wonder if you're sensitive. Or I wonder if the voice of the Spirit has become very faint and imperceptible, like a quiet whisper. You know, sometimes as Christians, we focus so much on sin, and we do need to to an extent, but I think it's sometimes, I know this is a bad analogy, but I think it's a bit like, have you ever played the game Taboo? And um, you know in the game Taboo, you get, if I'm right, I think you get a card, and it kind of, um, you have to describe something to someone else, and uh, there's certain words you have to avoid. But you find when you're trying really, really hard, that 
by trying to avoid those words, you're actually more likely to say them in the end. So you become so focused on it that you end up just slipping up again and again and again. And I think that we do that in our Christian lives as well. We focus so much on the things we're not meant to do. Whereas actually, as long as we submit to the Holy Spirit, he's always going to lead us to love. And as long as we love, then we're not going to have the time or the energy or the inclination to get involved in some of these things we shouldn't be. It's just focus. We can be very sin-focused, whereas I think God calls us to be spirit-sensitive, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Um, So... um, Basically, um, we have this battle within us. Verse 17, it talks about the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Um, So sometimes you can feel like you're in turmoil because you've got these two different parts of you, one which is renewed by the spirit, which is trying to love and serve people, and the other which is the flesh, which is trying to just love and serve yourself all the time. And you can feel like you're in a battle. But there is a way out of this. And that is to submit unreservedly to the Holy Spirit. Submit to the Holy Spirit unreservedly. It is possible to experience peace when you're in the midst of that conflict. Because it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 6, it says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. You can know peace in the midst of the battle that you're in this morning. If you're trying to serve the Lord, you can submit to the Spirit. You can know that peace. So we're just going to continue on. Uh, The next um, thing I want to say is that growing in love by the power of the Spirit is possible because the flesh has already been crucified. There are many ways you could execute yourself, um, but it's very, very difficult to crucify yourself because it's, it's just hard to do, really. Um, it's not a terribly easy thing to do. Someone else needs to crucify you. Um, but you know, the self-centered, the flesh life, is already being crucified at Calvary. That's the reality. It says in verse 24 that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And Paul says a similar thing in Romans 6 and verse 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves. And Paul says that the, the secret to being free in the Christian life is to appreciate that truth. Um, in Romans 6 verse 11 it says, Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. What does it actually mean? We say these things. I think, well, what does it mean to say that our flesh was crucified? Does that mean that we don't have a flesh anymore? Because we've got to understand what these things mean. Well, we still have our flesh nature. We still have that's still present with us all of our life. But it's, it's power to dominate and to run our lives. It's been knocked off the throne. So we don't have to uh, sin. We don't have to be in bondage to the flesh anymore. I just briefly want to go through now. We're just going to look about how does the flesh life manifest itself. And Paul goes through this list, doesn't he? A pretty ugly list um, from verse uh, 19 onwards. And um, these sorts of sins, really, they can be broadly, um, you could divide them if you wanted to into four different categories. They're sensual sins, religious sins, interpersonal sins, and social sins. So sensual sins, what are they? He starts with adultery. That's obvious, isn't it? Violating the marriage covenant fornication it comes from the greek word pornea that's quite obvious isn't it where that comes from and that's an umbrella term and that talks about a lot of different forms of sexual immorality 
uncleanness, it's obviously the opposite of purity, lewdness, and the root word of lewdness really means a very brash kind of parading about of sexual immorality. And we see that a lot in our society now, don't we? I was listening to women, Women's Hour, I don't know why I was listening to Women's Hour, on the radio the other day, and um, <coughs> they were having a phone-in discussion. Sorry, just people are not going to see me in the same light. Um, <laughs> but I was listening to Women's Hour on Radio 4, and, uh, and uh, it, it, the whole show consisted of women ringing up and just boasting about the number of partners that they'd had. And I just thought, you know, what have we come to? You know, that's, that's really lewdness. That's, that's lasciviousness. Um, that's, um, that's that kind of arrogant parading about of sin, which is so detestable. Religious sins, idolatry, worshipping anything created by human beings. Um, it's not necessarily something religious, but it could be anything else that we're we're worshipping in our lives. Sorcery and witchcraft. That comes from the Greek word pharmakeia. pharmakeia. And pharmakeia really um, is where we get our word pharmacy. Um, and uh, it, it really talks about illicit drugs that are, are trying to produce altered states of consciousness. I was reading, I don't know, I've written very bizarre things, but I was reading a lot the other day about, have you heard of ayahuasca? It's um, basically um, become very popular amongst tourists. They go to Peru and um, they go and visit the shamans and then they, they take this herb called ayahuasca and it kind of produces different states of consciousness. And the idea of it is that it will heal you of traumas in your life and so on. So it's become fairly popular. Um, but the thing is, it's associated with witchcraft. It's associated with the occult. Um, because they can open channels in your mind, they can open doorways that should never be opened and that are best left closed. Drugs, pharmacia, interpersonal sins we get now. Um, we hear about, it begins with hatred. Um, God cares about how we treat each other. Hatred, ekthra, is the, is the word. And that's our default state as people. It says in Titus 3 and verse 3, it says, We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, hateful and hating one another. And it's that attitude, of, that's that root of hatred in our lives that leads to all the other works of the flesh. It leads to uh, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Heresies. We often think of that as just being wrong teaching, don't we? But the root word of that is just to wrongfully divide over opinions. There's, there's a way which can be divisive. We have to contend for the truth. Um, we have to have convictions. I like the way this guy put it. He says, there's all the difference in the world between believing we are right and everyone else is wrong. Unshakable conviction is a Christian virtue. Unyielding intolerance is a sin. So we can be sure about our convictions, but we don't have to necessarily you know, um, be completely intolerant towards everybody else all the time. If we are completely intolerant to everyone else, that's more work of the flesh than of the spirit. Um, envy, pretty obvious. Murder, we know that's not just um, physically bumping someone else off, but it's um, murdering people in our hearts, as Jesus, as Jesus said. Social sins, drunkenness, um, you know, are we going to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, verse 18? Or drunkenness leads to dissipation. It's a word which means wastefulness. Wastefulness of our time, of our money, of our health. Revelries, what does that mean? I mean it's not wrong to have a party, is it? But revelries really means a wild party and where all restraint is cast off. 
So the common denominator of all of these sins, that's a bit depressing, I know, but the common denominator of all of that is that these are the works of the flesh. They center in self, they gratify and glorify self, but the the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is cultivated, is, is, um, is, is manifested by love. Growing in love, this is my final, um, this is my final point this morning. Um, <clears throat> growing in love by the power of the Spirit means that we become more of a garden than a factory. We become more of a garden than a factory. As Christians, we shouldn't think, we shouldn't feel that we're like these hard-pressed factory workers. We've got performance targets to, to meet and we've got to keep trying to press, press, press. We're actually, we're more like a garden. Jesus talked about um, the relationship that we enjoy with him and he says we should see ourselves more like fruit just hanging down from a branch. He says in John 15 and verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So branches, you don't see branches kind of pushing and straining and sort of exerting themselves to try and produce fruit. Instead, they just receive the sap of the spirit and the fruit appears. And you know, it's the same for us. As we gaze on Jesus, as we drink in his goodness, and as we receive the life of his spirit, he produces that righteousness in it. There's only really one fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit is love. All the other ones are just kind of like segments of an orange. We've talked about love a lot. It's, it's that unconquerable act of the will to seek the good of another person. Um, it's unconquerable in that no amount of rejection or ill-treatment or cruelty dims its flame. It bears all things. It's that kind of love which blesses those who curse it and it prays for those who spitefully use it. That's what Paul means when he says love. Joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's that knowledge, that settled knowledge that God is in control over all our circumstances. Happiness comes and goes in life depending on your circumstances, depending on what you're going through. It can be very fleeting. Um, but as believers, we can have a deep and a lasting joy. Then with you know that old hymn, I do like my old hymns, I'm afraid. I like the new ones too, but I like my old hymns. And uh, one of the old hymns says, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. We can experience a deep joy. Um, a peace, a peace which is steadfast. Even when there are multiple threats and, and pressures, it is that peace of God which passes all understanding. That's the same kind of peace that Paul and Silas experienced when they were in prison. Everything was against them, and yet in the midst of that, they were still able to pray and sing. And if you can pray and you can sing when everything seems hopeless in your life, that's the peace of God. That's the peace of God manifesting in your life. Long-suffering means what it says, being willing to endure something for the sake of someone else. We need long-suffering as believers, don't we? We can be under spiritual attack for long seasons from the enemy. Um, and having long-suffering means as well that we can bear up against his attacks long after our natural resources would have failed. Long-suffering, a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, the Spirit works in us the ability to remain faithful based on his promises that he will continue that good work in us. Gentleness and meekness. Not timidity, not passivity, but power under control. 
being under control. Self-control. The world often exercises self-control for its own purposes, whether that's for, um, you know, to, to attain fitness or to attain an education. But self-control here is others-focused, to benefit others. Against such, there is no law. So for the Christian who is fully under the control of the Spirit, the law really has become superfluous or it's unnecessary because all of our thoughts and actions and deeds become motivated by the Spirit. So there is, and it becomes motivated by love, which is the fulfillment of the law. It says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 9, Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. So really, that's what I wanted to say to you this morning. That's what I think the Lord wanted to say. You know, we've learned that as important as all of these gifts are and signs and wonders, the one sure evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is love. That's the one thing. We know that love is the fulfillment of the law. We know that we achieve this by submitting to the Spirit rather than striving to perform, and we appreciate the truth that the flesh has been crucified. So, the reality is that all of us in here, if we trust in Jesus, if we believe in him, if we've received the Holy Spirit, we can all become beautiful gardens of the Holy Spirit. We can become overflowing with his life um, as it manifests itself in us. And, and one of the things we do, the key to that really, is to surrender, to surrender ourselves unreservedly to the Spirit. 